Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Steph and this is the Don't Buy Her Flowers podcast and today's intro is rather boringly, I'm afraid, coming to you from my desk. Um, Sorry about that, but I wanted to do this properly and I'm feeling quite reflective. It's my birthday today and I am the grand age of 41 and uh, today's guest is Stacey Heal. And Stacey is a writer. You can follow her on Instagram where she um, is going through all the ups and downs and the reality versus expectation of um, life following her husband Greg dying four months ago um, after being diagnosed with bowel cancer five years ago. She's got two small children um, and she writes very honestly and she definitely doesn't pretend that everything's great or if there is a good day she shares that as well so I think um, it's quite different to most people's accounts of grief and death but also it's just really honest and she's talking with lots of other people all the time in this community that she's kind of building and that there's loads of different things going on for people that you don't necessarily associate with cancer and grieving and death so we talk about all of that um, we talk about overwhelm as well, which is something that Stacey talks really well about. And she also has a TEDx talk, which I will link to, which is covers quite a lot of that. But um, it is emotional, but she also has this energy that's infectious. Um, it's not depressing. I don't know how she does it, but she, she ha- she's a force, basically. And so I hope there's loads in here that people can take out of it because I think, well grief and death and probably cancer is something that most of us will have experience of or we're going to so there's there's a lot in there um but yeah for me i think greg and stacy were in their early 40s and um doug was diagnosed when i was 29 so i kind of it's yeah there's there's some parallels and some of what she was talking about at, at diagnosis stage i can really relate to but obviously our kind of stories are very different so there's it's just really made me think and spend quite a lot of time reflecting um and I don't think it's possible for everyone to have perspective all the time but this is a really good one for me for just going come on um especially because Stacey has some really powerful messages about life being short and the antidote to fearing death is to live and I think that that is yeah really powerful so 
I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, Stacey's been a great supporter of Don't Buy Her Flowers and there is a link in the notes to a carer's package that she put together a little while ago for us. Um, But if you do enjoy the episode, please do rate, review and subscribe and I'll come back to you at the end. So we've got loads to talk about. You and I have been messaging each other regularly for quite some time about overwhelm and in particular Glennon Doyle. Absolutely. And everything she has to say on it. Um, And also I went back and listened to your TED talk, which was from 2019. So I definitely want to talk about that. And then your husband died, is it five months ago? Four Four months ago. ago. Really, really not very long ago. After five years of... Up since he was diagnosed and you being a carer essentially and you've got two small children so there's quite a lot going on Stacey. Yeah although <laughs> it's, it's weird because my life was so intense during Greg's illness when he mm. was diagnosed. He was actually diagnosed on my youngest daughter Bay's her first birthday actually on that day. I read that and was just like fuck. Yeah <laughs> yeah it's, yeah, I actually, um, I came back from the hospital and um, I'd set out the, the table. It had like party plates and I'd made one of my um, notoriously terrible birthday cakes. <laughs> and um, I I just threw it on the floor and I just said to the girls, so my oldest daughter, who was just about to turn three at the time, and they ate Bay's birthday cake off the kitchen floor. Oh, mate. And... Because it was just so monumentally, because I don't know, I don't know if this is how we grow up or how we're taught things of like, this is how shit's going to go down. Mm. So you're going to, uh, you're going to go to university, you're going to meet someone lovely, you're going to have children, you you might get married, you're going to buy a house, you're going to have children. And you go, oh, it's their first birthday. It's what a wonderful thing. Mm. No, you're going to die. And it's so confusing it's so confusing because you're like this is the beginning of their life there's just this no, is the start just, we're at the start yeah this is... you're at the very very beginning mm. and you can't I, can't I don't know who you is you can't tell me this is the end yeah and did, it, did it, they say it's straight away because he'd he'd been ill for quite a long time as in he'd had tummy aches and they said it was IBS yeah. and you'd been to the doctors and stuff but did in that meeting when there was the diagnosis were they pretty much like well this is terminal at that point we had two different diagnoses so he had gone into hospital he'd gone to A&E because the pain he was in was so intense Mm. and at first it was hmm something's really not right here so we're going to do a scan he'd yeah it it had been I don't know three years that he had had some Mm. kinds of problems he'd been back back and forth to GP it's unfortunately such a common story for people who are in their 20s 30s 40s people saying all the classic symptoms of bowel cancer Mm. of blood of tummy aches of just irregular toilet habits Mm. loss of weight and it's like it's IBS that's just the go-to and uh, and stress as well I suppose in th- in your 30s you probably like you've got a young family you're trying yeah. to get your career going all this so you've got no sleep he was changing career mm. um he was in the band delays mm. who had had a great career for many many years released four albums and it was just he was ch- things were changing 
they didn't want to there was things changing in the music industry and he wanted to become a fine artist so there was big stress of like changing stuff in your changing career in your 30s and yeah no one was sleeping because you got babies of Mm. course you don't bloody sleep when you've got babies so it was just all those things and so you just and you believe people you're like yeah okay it's this yeah why would you not and then after years you're like no there really is this is really bad and then yeah and then things spiraled very very quickly Mm. so he had the first diagnosis in A&E when he had the initial scan that said you do have a tumor in your bowel you need to stay in hospital and we until we can kind of find out more and then about 10 days later after some more scans they told us that it had spread to his lungs which meant it was terminal Mm. and then everything changed everything changed Mm. in an instant and it's really weird the kind of things that go through your mind in those moments of trauma I mean that is what it is to be told that this is the beginning of your family life this is you know your young family your baby can't walk yet but um but she's going to lose her dad Mm. it's um yeah and then that was the beginning of our very weird new life when you talked about the trauma of also of having to tell people and having to keep reliving it in, and and that's something I, I when my husband was diagnosed and it's a very different story but I I was pregnant with our first and I was it was exhausting because you're dealing with other people's reaction to hearing Absolutely. the news when you're trying to do it, deal with it yourself and then you know we had one friend who said don't die will you and Doug's like you could surely write a whole book just on the stupid things people say right but Uh, but that that, and and it and I think we ended up with a system of having a a dedicated within our mates who were all like 29 when when he was diagnosed saying um how uh, one person would find out the information from us and they would disseminate it to everybody yes and I think yeah. you said text message actually became like a key way to do it, which might sound quite functional, but you had to because then you didn't have to respond. You didn't have to deal with their response. Absolutely. Because also what you don't realise is that when you are telling people terrible news, I remember the people that I phoned at the hospital, I phoned my parents mm. and they were, my brother was with them as well. They were so distressed. They were mm. crying and and I remember stood outside the um, hospital telling them on the phone and a stranger walked up to me and gave me a tissue because oh, I was literally like howling into my mobile. They were howling back. And um, at that time, I would actually, I had no social media accounts at all. Mm. I'd, I'd got to that place where I was done with the whole thing. I didn't have any. And then I was like, we'd told people through text message, I couldn't relive it again and again because Mm. what you then get is people ask you all the questions Mm. of is he going to die when is he going to die um what what are you going to do you're supposed to be going back to work in two weeks because I was on maternity leave are you coming back to work oh god no (laughs) um there's all these questions and you're having to kind of talk again and again say the same thing and I realized quite quickly that we just I just couldn't do that Mm. Greg couldn't do that so I said, okay, I'm just going to reinstate my Facebook account um, and we're just going to put a post up together that says, look, this is what's happened. Um, and, 
And then that became my tool to communicate with people. So initially, like you said, to do with Doug, it was like a group of people where you could disseminate information. So instead of having everyone contacting me, because they didn't want to contact Greg. So it yeah, contacted yeah. me saying, how's Greg? How's the treatment going? What did the scan say? Oh. All of this stuff again and again and again. So I then started using social media as um, as a tool just to document it in order for people to stop phoning me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just did, I it was so overwhelming the amount of communication at that point, and I I don't mean th- that sounds really ungrateful. No, I don't think it. Does. And I and I don't mean it like that. Mm. But it was about having to like you know people saying how are you, and I'm going. I don't don't know how to put that's a book Mm. how are you today Mm. it is a book of how I feel I feel multiple things and what happened with my writing is that I then started to kind of not just as an update for Greg I then started to write about how I was feeling Mm. and then um I was contacted asked if I wanted a newspaper column I know I love it it. amazing (laughs) and I was like this is weird a weird you know, um, you know, and this is what this is something that I struggle. I struggled with. This is you know maybe four years ago, and I struggle with now of the opportunities that come to me mm. based on my husband's demise. Mm. It's an internal struggle in me, but I'm really trying to just be like, well, do you know what? These are the cards you were dealt. Mm. You're going to need to just play them, and that's all you can do. <laughs> You have a way with work, like you are a beautiful writer. You write brilliantly, oh, but but you also are very honest. So you don't just roll out all the old tropes that people say when it comes to cancer and death and grief, but also parenting and overwhelm and all those things. And so your talent, like there's a talent there, which was there anyway. You just had gone down. I've just got no boundaries. No, no you haven't. No, but you, you'd gone down a different route. And I think that that, but I know, I've, I think I've heard Deborah James, so bow babe, yeah. um, say the same. <clears throat> She's ended up with a broadcasting career. Yeah. And she was in teaching before, um, very successfully, but they're very different roles in some ways. And well, she said it's say- a weird thing. You do well. You say it's uh, because I was a lecturer mm. before. Um, I was a university lecturer. I taught fashion, so yeah, a, a very different beast. But um, I know Deborah, and um, it's there are real similarities because I think if you're a t- if you have worked in any teaching profession, it really is a vocation, and you are kind of like a teacher at heart. And I see writing and writing like Deb's does as well is you are trying to be the teacher Mm. in a way. You're kind of saying, well, that's all teaching is. It's like to say, okay, here's this experience. I'm going to translate it, communicate it to you. And then we're starting a discussion. Mm. So I I see that as really similar. Mm. Yeah, and it's communication, isn't it? And you're obviously good at that. But with the column, you also ended up with a web, the Beneath the Weather website where you would post about the hard things that happen to humans yeah I think I was really aware I think when something really cataclysmic happens to you it's a bit like I've used this analogy before my mum used to bang on about I really would love my dream car is like a white Qashqai Nissan Qashqai (laughs) don't know and um because it's really rare You, you know it's a bit special you don't see them 
every fucking car you saw <laughs> was a white Qashqai. And she was, well, she got one and she was like, oh. Um, and I think that's the thing of like, when you start focusing on something, suddenly it's everywhere. So I lived a quite charmed life before this. And then suddenly I looked around and it wasn't just people with cancer. It was people with all sorts of problems going on. And what I found was that people weren't talking about things in the way that how of how I was feeling. Mm. That's why I started writing as well was because I just thought no one's talking about the stuff that I'm feeling. I I, I need to I need to see this back. And I think mm. there's great comfort. And that's why I think social media, while it gets an incredibly bad rap, and there's some really fucking shit things about social media. Mm. I think anyone who's involved with it, you know, knows what they are. But there's some really, really incredible things about it. And one of those things is community. Mm. To be able to have these niche areas, whether that be uh, the cancer community or a widow community or baby loss or, or or fun things of like, you know, I follow some incredible interiors uh, pages where you, you find your, these little niches and they create community and, and real friendship. Mm. real real world friendship not just through a screen when especially where you you you've said it was like a lifeline basically so because you the cancer community especially are is big on Instagram and it is especially once you're in it I think probably you'd be oblivious to it until something happens or you start to follow someone then suddenly you realize there's a lot of people in it Um, well one in two people are going to be diagnosed with cancer so that's that's a lot if you add in yeah. carers and the people going through it well that's everyone isn't it yeah if it's one in <laughs> yeah. two yeah, there's much. there's a, there's the 50 percent of people who will be diagnosed mm. and then the 50 percent of people that look after them mm. that's all of us and that support I think that you felt you had became something really big on social media yeah one of the questions I had sent in was around support so if someone hasn't got it on social media, but they're trying to work out how to support someone going through it, I guess, mm. because it's such a fun, like you say, your whole life changed overnight. And then you've got people who are going through that and the people who are watching someone go through that and they feel completely useless and they don't know what to do. So I suppose in the first instance, how do you support someone who's going, whose family are going through diagnosis? I think there are some really, really practical things that you could do that I think are quite universal. I think from the feedback of other people who have been in our situation, I think this is a a universal desire, um, is to turn up to them in a very practical way. So food. Mm. Food, uh, Food was like the first port of call. I had my core group of friends, they started a rota where they bought fresh meals every single day for three months and it was stuff that was literally it wasn't like a hello fresh box or something like that where it's like oh here's all the ingredients you put together it was like put this in the oven Mm. heat it up and serve it that's Mm. it and like some snacks and little bits of activities for the kids um do you know what my favorite thing that I was ever given was one of my one of the mums on the school run gave me this enormous pink hoodie mm. and um and it was all about comfort mm. it was just this kind of protective layer that i could just um 
be warming. Oh, that don't know what that's made me feel emotional. The thought that someone knew what you needed, yes. right? Oh, huge, huge. They couldn't be there in your house doing all those things or helping Greg, but they could just go, oh, comfort here's, for you. Yeah, here's mm. a cuddle mm. and, you know, some lovely, mm. sounds really, really silly, but, you know, some really lovely socks or um, a really lovely blanket. For that level of level of mm. comfort, there is so little comfort and ease within a cancer diagnosis when a death happens. Um Having those physical things is um, is lovely. Uh, well, and I guess you're not going to do that for yourself, are you? Because you're you're. I mean, you're the last five years. I think one of the posts I was reading, you were saying about um, you've been fight or flight for five years. Yeah. Whilst going through this massive trauma, um, so it's it's really big. Do you know what? I'm only starting to realise that mm, now. Mm. I think things, as things are starting to settle down into some kind of routine again and the dust is settling mm. and I'm starting to reflect, I think I'm really only just starting to see the impact of fight or flight. For, for you know, that level of adrenaline and cortisol that's running through your body and especially as the carer you're, and a mother it was this like hyper vigilance of everything and everyone and to come out of that it's really not easy mm. and i'm i'm struggling with that i can feel the tension physically in my body i can feel my hyper vigilance to do with the health of everybody mm. yeah having to still be a mother is is um it's a double edged sword because on one hand it's such a motivator to keep going like I don't get the chance to stay in bed and wallow. Um, I'm up, out, breakfast has still got to be served. So that's a great motivation to keep keep shit going, really. Mm. But at the same time, it's hard because you're having to hold the grief of your children whilst grieving yourself, but not, sh- you know, thinking what's the, what's the good balance of showing them that it's okay to cry, mm. but at the same time, not looking like you're having a breakdown because then they'll be terrified that you can't look after them. Yeah. Who the fuck's going to look after us? Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's going, everyone's losing the plot. Um, that overwhelm is still there. Um, mm. but just in a different, in a different way. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to be very kind, like super kind to myself, kind of like how you treat a baby. Really. I'm giving myself time every afternoon to have a nap. Well, you said the other day in a post that you're worried because you don't get much done because you're doing that. But I just think how many people don't do that when they're going through trauma? They don't allow themselves just to nap. And I can't, I just think it must be the best thing that you can practically well, do. Well, do you know what? Absolutely. After I, after I had, yeah, I was almost like I sent out like an SOS distress of like saying to people, ah, I've got to sleep every afternoon <laughs> like an old woman. Um <laughs> And it, it was just that ridiculous nonsense, isn't it? That productivity, that uh, busy thing of going, yeah. I can't take this time out of my day, but I could be doing so much. Mm. Um, but actually, yeah, if you look on paper, it's like, yeah, you've been in trauma for five years. Mm. You just had to watch your husband die. You've just been to his funeral. You're having to deal with the repercussions of the grief in his children. Um it's you don't have you you don't have another adult in your house now. So, mm. you know, the witching hours, four to seven, 
Well, it's not even four to seven. Let's be honest. I'd say it's four to ten. <laughs> yeah. Four to ten. Yeah. Um, uh, it's hard. It's hard. And actually, yeah, if your body, um, all the replies to it, well, I'd say 85% were like, just go to sleep. Well, and also, but I bet you a lot of the people who replied, because it's very easy to be sensible when it's not yourself yeah. and go, oh, of course you should sleep. And if you were saying this to someone else, you would be like 100% you don't need to achieve anything at the moment except for you know, like getting through the day to day and having your nap. But you're also going against society's version of being a woman, which is that you should be oh. just how you feel like you should be producing something. But I, I genuinely think that you have you definitely don't need to be at this stage god four months i I know but but you're right it is it's most certainly the conditioning it is my conditioning because Mm. before greg was diagnosed i um ran a degree course i was working full time i had little babies and i was in charge of lots of young women uh and it was busy and i'd convinced myself that i was like this is the dream. <laughs> I can have it all. Mm. I can, um, I can mm. have babies. I can um, be really high up in academia. I can do all of this, and I couldn't. I, I, I actually couldn't. It was, it was destroying me. So you talk about that in your TEDx talk, though. You, you give a description of having morning sickness and being a carer and working and being a mum and all the stuff. And then there's a line where you just kind of pause and you're like, you you said, um, I cannot do it all. And that that was the most empowering thing as a woman that you've ever said. I suffered from postnatal depression for five months after my second daughter was born. And I did this in silence because I was so scared to be vulnerable and to say pe- to people, I'm not really coping with this very well. <laughs> Um, And that was a revelation for me that you could actually just say, this is a bit hard. (laughs) Um, I'm not doing so well today. I really could do with some help for this. And I realised that actually the opposite was true for me as a woman of like, not just being signed up to this gang of going, I can have it all, but actually to say, I can't do it all, was the most empowering thing I had ever said as a woman. When I did the TED Talk, when I went backstage afterwards, in the green room, there was three or four women who were all part of it, Mm. and they were all sat crying. Mm. And I said to them, oh, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry to make you cry. Because there was a speaker, so everyone could hear the talk. So sorry to make you cry, like... I know, you know, it's sad about Greg, you know, it's a sad story. And they were like, no, we were just, we're all just like talking about how fucking hard it is to be a woman. Oh. Um, no offence to Greg, but like... Um, <laughs> that was sad too. <laughs> That's sad, yeah. yeah. Greg's sad too. But yeah, that, that and I think that really triggered people of like, as when you hear, you know, I was rattling through my life and talking about, yeah, when I was... Um, I had such bad morning sickness when I had when I was pregnant with Bay, my second child. Um, so Greg was really ill at that point. Darley, I don't even remember Darley at that age because I had so much going on. I remember being in a presentation with my students, and um, 
they were presenting on a screen and I had turned my head to look at something on the screen that was sideways and just that movement I was sick in my mouth oh my god and I was like you've got to keep the show going so I just like swallowed and just gave my feedback and it that is it in a nutshell isn't it Mm -hmm. of like being on your fucking knees and just carrying on just being like the show goes on I'm uh I'm the matriarch and it's Mm. it's so bullshit isn't it like this I this this idea that's fed to us of of what feminism is when actually you know the, the whole thing of you can do it all you can have a family and you can break through the glass ceiling and you can have um a great uh, workout workout regime, and you can meditate, and you can drink all the water, and you can have these great friendships that are going to be really nurturing, and that you're going to have till you die. Um, you can have all of that, and it will break you. <laughs> it will actually break you, and it doesn't allow for the stuff that happens, the unexpected stuff that happens, like a pandemic or a diagnosis or like, no, there's always something else. So we're, we're teetering on the edge and then these other things come along and we kind of try and swoop them in and carry on and you can't. No, no. And, and in some ways, um, Greg's diagnosis, I mean, I, I then left work when Greg was diagnosed because we all thought that he was going to die really quickly because he mm. was so unwell. As it turns out, uh, we had five years with him. Mm. And I, you know, he was diagnosed in November. I really was worried that we wouldn't even get to Christmas. It was that bad. So actually, I had all this time with him, with the babies. But at the same time, there was this. Um, you know, relating to pe- people still then trying to do it all. I was then at home trying to be some kind of master doctor, trying to learn oncology, trying to research oncology and like, how can I save him? I took that on. I truly did. I believed that I could save him if I was, mm. you know, that conditioning of if you're a smart girl at school, it's like you can go to university. Uh, you can break, you know, you can be the CEO, you can do all that stuff. And that really gets entrenched in you. So I was like, especially coming from academia, I'd been a researcher as well. So I was like, okay, I'll just do all the research. I'll, I will look through all the journals. I'll do, I will be phoning people in the States to try and find the most cutting edge things. I'll resolve this for us. Um, and dur- during Greg's illness, I ended up in hospital myself. I had, um, I suffered from asthma and I had an asthma attack that was, that my lungs almost collapsed from. There was, they were mm. pumping all the medicine into me in A&E. And again, still, um, I was like, I'm fine. I'm going to go home. I've got to go home. I've got to pack to go on holiday. And they were like, they had to get these consultants to come sit with me and say, you're really, really ill. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. But I was like, no, listen, I'll have a quick go on this nebulizer and then I'll <laughs> pop. Give me a glass. Look, come on, just let, let's just have a go on this and then I'll go home. And mm. then it really hit me that, like, no, fuck, I'm really, really sick here. And I was four days in hospital. And then when I kind of accepted that, it was like a holiday. 
it mm. was. I really enjoyed it. My friends that came to visit me, they were like, oh, you you look very happy and rested. You're glowing. Like, and I was <laughs> yeah. like, I was in bed. I was listening to podcasts. I was having food and drinks bought to me. It was joyous. And I then read about other mothers in particular who had said, mm. like, they dream of having to go to hospital for a mm. break. I mean... No. It's fucked. No, 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 it's fucked. And you know you know that, but you don't act like that. The um I've got a quote Glennon at you because Good. we do regularly exchange. We do. We I, know, do. You're, I mean you'll know the quote without me saying it, but of course. no, um she was talking about overwhelm and she was saying how the whole world revolves around women not meeting their own needs. Oh, and yes. and she does this amazing it's a clip on her Instagram feed and I'll put it in the notes but she has this amazing sort of little mini speech where she's just like what if instead of worrying about everyone else's needs um and while we're doing that we are teaching them that they always put themselves bottom what if we switch that around and our worry becomes how do I demonstrate to my family to my children that that I am important and that I can have a full and joyful life and still be a mum and a woman and all those things but I get to be a, a whole person and every time I hear it I'm just it's like a fire in my belly because it makes you want and I know you're the same but absolutely I I totally understand that and everything we've just said about you know the roles of women mm. and it being packaged as feminism it's really the patriarchy in a really really good disguise I feel of like it's that way of going oh you're actually going to do more work <laughs> you're actually going with the or with the guise of um you're free you get to do it all yeah, yeah. you Lucky get you. to be involved in mm. all of this you get mm. to have all these options and choices but actually you're doing more than anybody else for much much little mm. and I yeah I'm I'm so aware having two daughters as well I was gonna say what what does that mean for how what you want to teach to the girls well I think I was really aware of them when Greg was ill I was really aware that I wanted to show them I suppose how much I loved him I was always thinking like I want them to see of how wonderful I thought he was and that I would that that's what love is and I I definitely think I lost myself in that and and now now that it is just the three of us I feel like I, it's the same thing, but maybe the other side of the coin that I want, I want to show them that I matter and to, and to set those boundaries so that they can see me set the boundaries and it's, they will then know that that's okay to do that for mm. themselves. And I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot because as, as my career moves forward in writing and whatever that holds for me, I don't want to apologise for that. Mm. I don't want to apologise for being successful because successful doesn't just mean luck. It means fucking hard work Mm. and years and years of stuff that's gone into it and emotion and, and I want to show them that like showing up and saying, do you know what? Shit happens. Really, really bad shit will ha- has happened to us already. It is going to happen again to us. But we've got to choose how we show up. Mm. I think that's such... Uh, I'm so aware of that as um, as the sole parent as well, but as the as the female lead in our house. Mm. Yeah, it's a, big, it's a big role, isn't it? Especially 
because there must be so much conflicting stuff going on for all of you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think one of the things that you do in your writing is you explore the difference between um, expectation and reality around grief and death. And I think it's so powerful because... It's just it. It's so odd <laughs> that death is something that everybody is so fearful of, and and speaks so strangely about. And yet, it's the one thing, the one thing that is going to happen to every single one of us. And obviously, how it happens and when it happens is very different, and and has lots of implications mm-hmm. on how that process is. But what are the biggest differences that you thought were going to happen, and then obviously didn't? Um, I think that generally when we think about grief, we think about just death, just the death. And then we think about sadness. And that is pretty much it. But actually, there are so many other emotions that that are brought up by grief. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think I've, I haven't written about this yet, but... Um, <coughs> So when Greg was dying, there was two months when he like we were we were clear that he was about to die mm. and it took two months to happen. During that time, I have never felt as horny. <laughs> um 
in my life. Now, to to the layman who's hearing that, that makes me sound like, well, either insane mm. or like this insatiable sex addict. I don't think I'm either. <laughs> but it, it uh, what I was aware of was that it was um, being so close to death. Like we were in the hospice for the first couple of weeks and you know I walked into the hospice one day and they had wheeled this woman out who was almost a corpse like she really really was so close to death she looked like it and there was the priest um reading her her last rites in 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 the reception in front of the kettle it it death was here I felt it in me and to watch the deterioration of Greg, I think it was this really base physiological gut reaction of being alive, Mm. of I I need to prove that I'm still alive. And, um, you know, I I didn't have sex. I haven't had sex. Mm. That was, (laughs) turns out, yeah, that's not really appropriate. Um, It's a common feeling. And that women, like widows, Mm. are like afterwards like ah it's it is that thing of like you've literally watched somebody you love die Mm. and it's it's not about it's not about another person it's not not like going oh I want to go and find someone else it's this real physiological urge Mm. in you to it's a bit I think it's a bit like when a lot of people get pregnant after funerals because they go to funerals well we did it me and Greg got pregnant after um Greg's granddad and one of my best friends died mm. within like two weeks of each other. We got pregnant first time we tried after that. Right. Because I think it's that thing of like, death. Yeah, I need to live. Fuck. We need to live. Yeah. yeah, life is short. Why are we Why are we putting stuff off? Mm. What, what's the point? Mm. We don't know what's going to happen. But that I think that yeah. you talk also about um, some of the practical bits like that in the last, um, like, few weeks that you're talking about you probably spent 10 minutes a day with him whereas oh, you yeah. you didn't want to just necessarily be together for every minute at that point so I absolutely thought that when the time came we've got really close fa- you know our family is really really close on both sides so I thought it would be like a setting up a vigil situation of like we're all going to be there we're going to be on some kind of rota people are going to be with him I definitely thought that, that we would have some really deep, meaningful conversations, mm. that it would be this kind of like closure of let's tell each other how we felt each other about, you know, about our lives. Let's have some kind of like conclusion to mm. our relationship, your life. Tell me about what were the most important things in your life. Tell me about what your regrets are. Um, actually, as it happened, he didn't want anybody with him at all really and I know all of us in the inner sanctum found that really really emotionally difficult he was exhausted he was tired he didn't I think he just found it a pressure to have you know someone you're trying to sleep and someone's literally sat at your bedside staring at you yeah I think and also because we all knew what was coming I think it might have just felt too much Mm. too much for him but again that's not what you not what you see in films that's not how and no one talks about this shit Mm. so you don't know that so what we were really really shocked that that was happening Mm. 
and and that carried on and as he got more and more sick I I started to realize that those conversations were not going to happen because he was just too ill there was just no way he could have those conversations and that was really really tough did that does that leave you feeling angry not not now but yeah okay yeah no it does I don't feel I don't feel quite so angry I was angry so I think in any relationship you have your things don't you you have things that you've kind of that you bring up in arguments Mm -hmm. like things recurrent things that your 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 partner does that you've got a bit of a problem with but you think you've got time you think you have and and I I think we didn't have time to resolve lots of discussions that we needed to have and um I knew it wasn't going to happen and I thought the only thing I can do is um I wrote him a letter Mm. because I thought at least then I know that he will go knowing these key things and um so I know he read it. He didn't. He didn't talk to me about it, but I know he read it. And um, I, I must admit, even then, I was like, secretly, like, write me a letter yeah, back. Some, can't they? Give me something. <laughs> Please write me a letter back. And I think that's the thing. Is like, I think people think that it's like these holding hands uh, moments. But of- every portrayal I think I've ever seen of a death it, it, it there is a resolution nearly always and it's you know even if it's an awful relationship and you know in a movie and then there's something said at the end which is you know I was always proud of you or whatever <laughs> yeah and I think that's the thing with death if, if we only hear the same stories trotted out and the same emotions and the same I don't know feelings that people and experiences I guess it is then when it happens and it doesn't feel like that and I mean that's not dissimilar to motherhood probably in that there's so much going on there's so much nuance and and if you no one talks about it then you're gonna feel like you failed when it happens and you're already coping with a lot Mm. you know but but to link to motherhood you know when you do get into that getting pregnant there are all these systems in place for particularly of our generation of Mm. the um you get the bounty pack given to you with all of this information. There's um, mum's net. There's mm. uh, the mother load. There's all of these, like, you know, the mummy bloggers. Of There's mm. all these things that people are talking about. There's structures in place that you can kind of have some feedback and have yeah. people talk about their problems. And, you know think about nct groups there's a there's groups that you go to with other people who are in the same position same timings as you to be like this is what's happening and this you know this is how you change a nappy this is we're going to show you diagrams of what's going to happen to your pelvis um it's it really goes through stuff and i coming out you know to the other side of life you know the birth is natural we have all these books, all of these resources for people to not feel alone. And I feel like coming out this side, especially as someone who is, you know, would be considered a young widow, there are like, you know, support groups, but everyone's in their 70s and 80s. Mm. I, I can't, I can't relate to that. Um, Do you think people just pretended it wasn't happening for younger people until now? 
because it's too painful, it's too sad or something. I don't know. Whereas it's expected when you're old, but then it happens. It's obviously bloody happening. Absolutely. But I think it is one of those things. Grief actually reminds me at this point of time that we're in now as the new mental health. Mm. I think that where mental health was, say, 20 years ago, where there was stigma attached to it and people didn't want to talk about it, people didn't want to admit how they were feeling. It was very much behind closed doors. Things have changed, thankfully, um, to a point where it's, it's terms that we hear again and again. Obviously, still a lot of work to do, um, but it is much more in the foreground of discussions, public discussions, um, and private dis- and people are feeling that they can talk about stuff. And I feel that grief is is the new mental health. That especially with the pandemic, I feel like we've all experienced globally. Mm such a collective grief of how life was before it's not even just about the horrific deaths of people that we've lost whether that be through actual covid or people losing their jobs people losing their identity their friendship groups um the new mothers not being able to make friends with new mothers there is layer upon layer of grief that i don't know if we even know what that means yet Mm. and the thing is with grief if you don't talk about it it just finds another outlet yeah well the the, um episode the prior to this is with um helen russell and who's written the book how to be sad sad, yes yeah and basically every expert across the world ever when it comes to sadness and happiness is like you have to experience that and feel sadness and if you don't let it out it will come back at some point as something <laughs> like you can't oh, you can't avoid it basically absolutely and i've no but i've really noticed that what i i try to really talk about the full gamut of emotions and mm, i talk about yeah. like literally when i'm um i can't get out of bed because mm. i just feel broken and then i talk about when i'm really ecstatic and doing really fun things and i feel really positive and i've definitely noticed that people really do prefer the happy posts the oh happy really writing. yeah because well, because um people love the hero's journey yes, don't they yeah we want you of to be okay. like like oh my god your life was so shit haha oh she's smiling again no, it's fine it's fine like, everything's fine like, fuck for that <laughs> yeah um until i'm happy in a way that people don't agree with and then they yeah but i can imagine it's their own shit if someone does react in a wrong way to you telling people how you feel because it's how you feel. It, that's the whole point, isn't it? Absolutely. And again, on paper, that's absolutely the case. I think nobody would disagree with that. But I think we have these really entrenched ideas about what is appropriate for women in particular. Um, I know like for other people who are like young widows, people who have gone on to have other relationships and and I don't want to just talk about women I mean men as well Mm. the the interest in and the commentary and the judgment of other people's relationships Mm. afterwards as if they're as if they're fair game as if Mm. it's like we can judge we can make a decision about how much you loved your dead partner Mm. depending on how long the time is and I I know other people in the in the 
young widow community mm. who have all experienced this. Mm. Um, and again, it's it's and I definitely know that women have a harder time of that mm. than men. And sadly, it's probably women who are, are making the comments, right? Or making the commentary or of course. to their friend. Did you see so-and-so off Instagram? Yes. He's now doing this. And it's like, we well, I guess we need to stop ourselves from feeling that because it's like, what, why? Why do we need to feel that or comment on that? Because ultimately, it's um, you've got to do what you can do to get mm. through or what makes you happy. Or It's such an enormous lesson, I think, in empathy because mm. it's really, a, it's a situation of if you haven't been through it yourself, you don't know. I try to practice that of like when other people are in situations that I have no knowledge of. I know people who are getting divorced. I know people who have lost babies and had um, fertility problems. I don't know what, I don't know what any of those things are. So I wouldn't even like to say how I would react to them. Mm. I remember really clearly, actually, when I was 16, um, I remember there was a, a rumor going around that one of the girls in our year had got pregnant. And so me and my two best friends went home for lunch. We had a big um, debriefing on it of like, oh, well, I would never do that. I, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't get rid of my own baby. And I got pregnant two weeks later. Oh, man. And the first thing I thought was, um, I can't keep this baby. Like, mm. I'm 16, really not with a great guy at all, boy, he was a boy, um, mm. uh, this can't happen, this can't happen. And it was it was such a wake-up call at such an early age of, wow, like, you think you know, you think you've got an idea of how you would act in a certain situation, mm. um, but you don't until you've been through it. And, mm. and yeah, and I'm, I'm really aware, especially in my situation now of, again, I don't know, it's, it's, it's more unusual comp conversation and a situation to be in of you know a widow at 41 Mm. and have two really small children who are at the beginning of their life and what that's going to look like and and trying to move forward in a really positive way that is for for me and my girls and not to please other people one of the posts you write about how you made a promise to yourself five years ago that you would not die with Greg yeah it really just, I think it was one of those oh, moments when you read something that you've written. And there's a lot of those in your writing, to be honest. But what you talk about, the the antidote to fearing death is to live. And you posted that along with a picture of you in goggles because you'd been swimming. <laughs> but I, don't take yourself too seriously. But I, it's there's things that you've said like that, that are really strong, really powerful, that... I guess would that be a that would that be what you would say to people who are like what do I do how do I grieve I think it's probably really personal about how people mm-hmm. do that and I can see that even in um all of all of us the our families the people who are really close to us are all grieving really really differently so I think mm-hmm. it's a really really personal choice for me I feel that um to be so close to death made me so aware of of how short life is and i know that's a cliche that it's such a cliche but it's so desperately true it is mm. so desperately true 
And what I did, I'm a very impulsive, reactionary person. So my my reaction was, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do all the things that scare me. I'm going to do cold water swimming. I'm petrified of having my face in water. I don't even put my face in the shower. I'm going to teach myself how to swim underwater. <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 trying to live in a really big way. And I'm re- because I feel it'd be a massive disservice to Greg. Greg lived in a really big way. He wasn't this big, loud, gregarious character. He was like the archetypal painter, like a Van Gogh type that he was really introverted um an exceptional creative talent surrounded by books but he never let anything stop him he he never did he just was like I'm going to be in a band and we're going to be big and they released Mm. four albums and they toured the world played all the festivals they went to have lunch at Elton John's house. I read, I read like, what he wrote about <laughs> lunching with Elton John. I loved it. I lo- especially one of the band, one of the guys from the band was trying to take pictures of Elton's legs yes, under the under table. the table, under the table. It's, a, it's on your, it's on the beneath the weather yes, blog of his uh, yeah. his purple velvet suit under the table. <laughs> um, you know, and then Greg was like. I want to be an artist, and then he had a um, he had a joint exhibition with Van Gogh. I w- mm. and then he said, I want to be a poet. And he he published a book of poetry and won the Poet Laureate Award. I mean, it, he was disgustingly talented. Let's I do need to say that. He was like one of those people where it's quite revolting <laughs> how naturally talented <laughs> he was. But he, he just had this belief which was like, I'm just going to do all this stuff. And I and I think that's I feel Greg's presence in me to do with that. I feel I don't feel him in like robins or white feathers or feeling his presence. I don't feel anything like that. I feel that I spent 15 years with him and just our joint energy, our time together, his influence on me has infiltrated my being and I've taken on those aspects of him. And it's like Mm. he's left this residue with me to live big and and to not and to not apologize not apologize for that oh stacy that's such a perfect kind of summary and i think you've you've mentioned about how um people will say oh you're a warrior and you're a I don't know, your inspiration and all these things. And you are all those things. But the reason for me that you're all those things is because they are balanced with the reality and the anger or relief or sadness or and you're not you're not positioning it into one thing. You're you're covering all of it. And I think that makes it that makes it and you stronger than just going, Oh, she handled it so well, wasn't she strong? The strength comes from all of the whole gamut of emotion that you convey in your writing. Yeah, and I, I really had to learn that the hard way uh, of that kind of like type A personality of I'm going to win cancer. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to get an A star in caring. I'm just, <laughs> um, and actually, yeah, the, the strongest thing I ever did was saying, learning to say to close friends to family and then more public to say I'm not coping this is so hard and I don't know how to do it 
there's there's so many things that I don't know I I feel and this is the teacher in me I feel like I want to create a community I don't want I'm not really interested in just my own voice to be honest I want to create a community of people who want to talk not just about cancer or death but about hard things and Mm. I want to hear about like the real the real deep stuff about all sorts of hard things and give people that voice and there's a lot of freedom in that I I found Mm. so little freedom in having it all I find so Mm. much more freedom in being able to say I can't do all of this I really really need some help oh thank you so much Stacey awesome oh thank you First of all, a massive thank you to Stacey for speaking with me. Um, there's lots of links in the show notes so you can, some of the things we talked about and also so you can find her on Instagram if you don't already follow her. Um, and I wanted to share a message I had from Nick who wrote in and said that she didn't feel a connection for ages after her dad died with him. And friends kept saying, oh, you'll feel so close to them. And she really questioned whether she was spiritual enough. And I just thought, especially after hearing Stacey talk, like I suppose grief is really, really personal and it can be lots of different things all at the same time. And it, and so other people telling you how they found it isn't necessarily how you're going to feel, but also even people listening to this may feel very differently to Stacey. And I think the, my understanding of it is it's, it is really personal. And so by sharing how the different experiences, it's something that somebody might relate to, but it doesn't mean we all do. Um, so yeah, so my message to Nick would be that she is perfectly spiritual enough and not to beat herself up about how she should or shouldn't be feeling. And if you want to write in with any comments or thoughts on anything really, um, it's podcast at don'tbuyherflowers.com. We have got episodes coming up on divorce and breakups, love and also um, motherhood. We've got a big motherhood series coming. So I will welcome any of your thoughts and questions. And as always, please rate and review and subscribe. If you subscribe, then you'll get a little ping when we release a new episode, which is extra special for you. <laughs> um, but and thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a really good week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 